Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Ephesians is a letter about living together in the midst of human differences. The author writes as a Jew to a, gently, to a largely Gentile audience with the message that in Christ, God has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. It's not easy living together as two groups who had previously been at odds with one another on religious grounds. The letter acknowledges that living with differences requires effort. It takes humility and gentleness and patience. Before the author goes on to describe this situation and advise the recipients how to respond, he first stops to thank God for having placed us in this situation. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, 3 through 14 is one long sentence extolling God's actions. Many of Paul's letters open with a thanksgiving for the faith and spiritual gifts of the recipient community. Ephesians includes both the thanksgiving for the community and for God's action. Let's hear the beginning of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness, riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who acknowledges all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. This is our last time singing this together. And then we'll move on for Lent. So uh, sing it out if, you, if you've learned it over the last eight weeks. Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways as we learn from one another. Learn 
learn to love each other. Teach us your ways. Teach us to give. Teach us to give. Give ourselves for one another. Learn to help each other. Teach us to give. As we finish up our uh, Life After God series today, we are going to explore one final question, and that is, what will God do with planet Earth? It's a question that we humans have been asking for centuries, actually, long before we ever had any idea whatsoever that we were actually on a planet, let alone that uh, the planet that we're on is just one of eight other planets in our solar system, or that it circles the sun at something like 60,000 miles an hour while rotating at its axis at like 50, or 100,000 or 100, miles an hour and uh, moving through our solar system at 550,000 miles an hour. In a universe that is tens of millions of miles wide. Do you ever feel like you're just going a million miles an hour sometimes? <laughs> you're right. In the words of the great prophet Ferris Bueller, <laughs> life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you might miss it. Well, here we are, all eight billion of us, hurtling through space on the back of what amounts to a grain of sand in this infinitely expanding and expansive universe. So doesn't it logically sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of seem like we, the way the planet goes is kind of how humanity is going to go? In the grand scheme of things, doesn't it seem logical that our destiny as humans is intimately tied, for better or for worse, with the destiny of this planet. Where is it all headed? Is there, is, there, is there an end point to all of this? In 2003, astronomers from JPL's Century Impact Monitoring System, they peered through their telescopes and they gave us a date, March 21st, 2014. And then they gave us a name, QQ47. And that's what they called this four billion year old asteroid that they were targeting at the time. It was three quarters of a million miles wide, uh, weighing uh, uh, something like 20, uh, 2 billion tons. It was hurtling through space at 22 miles per second in our general direction. And based on their observations, QQ47 had a 1 in 250,000 chance of impacting Earth on March 21st, 2014. This would have been our extinction event. And people said, oh, 1 in 250,000, impossible odds, right? It'll never happen. And they went down to the liquor store and they bought their lottery ticket. 
with, a high, with one in 26 million uh, odds. And they thought that they had a good chance of winning. <laughs> March 21st, 2014 came and went. QQ47 was nothing to worry about. But what if it had been? What if it was right now? Would it change how we live? Would it change how we spend our precious days? For centuries, Christians have been obsessed with what we call, or what has been called, the end times, the apocalypse. The end times were more recently popularized by that series of books called Left Behind, in which the faithful are raptured to heaven, while non-believers and maybe some progressives are left behind (laughs) to suffer through this cosmic extinction event known as the, quote, Great Tribulation. According to this view, you will know that the end times have arrived when the world undergoes political and economic crisis, global pandemics, environmental catastrophe, military conflicts, pretty much everything that's happening right now. Some people like to talk about the end times because it becomes this convenient framework for explaining why the world is the way it is and why it is we don't have to do anything about it. Climate change, systemic injustice, COVID-19, military conflicts in Ukraine. Not only should we not worry about these things, they say, but we should welcome them as signs of God's coming. I don't want to offend anybody, but I call that cringe and fringe Christianity. Because it is popular, it is profoundly profitable, but it is deeply unbiblical. In the 18th century, a woman by the name of Anne Lee claimed that she was a second coming of Christ. It's a true story. Anne Lee, uh, she formed this movement that made ecstatic dancing or what they called shaking in worship, a very popular thing. And so they became known as the Shakers. Believing that Anne Lee was the second coming of Christ, they devoted themselves to purity and total, complete celibacy. So they had a lot of time on their hands. (laughs) And what what did they do with it all? They made a lot of really cool furniture. December 21st, 2012, according to the ancient Mayan calendar, that was when the world was supposed to end. Thousands flocked to this small little village in southern France uh, known as Bougarac. It was a little farming village perched above the Mediterranean Sea. They all believed that this would be the safe refuge on the day of the apocalypse. And many of them, (laughs) many of them wandered around in their birthday suits. And they claimed that one day on the day of the apocalypse, there were space aliens, this is true stuff, there were space aliens under the surface of the earth who would rescue them. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) So here's the question. Why do a growing number of people struggle to believe in God? Or at least struggle to believe in the God they've been told about but who seems so fantasy-landy? Maybe it's because too many Christians today are so obsessed with the second coming of Christ but they have neglected to faithfully follow the Christ who came the first time. Where does it all go? Where does this apocalyptic thinking come from? Much of Scripture, we know this. 
uh, particularly the letters uh, to the early Christians in Rome and around Asia Minor. Much of our uh, New Testament is written to people who are living with a sense of the apocalyptic. And for early Christians, apocalyptic thinking was sparked by the violent, uh, relentless persecution by a succession of Roman emperors, each of whom demanded that their citizens confess their faith in them as emperors, as the Son of God. Which, if you're a Christian, that kind of gets problematic. And so to refuse to do so would be uh, a state crime, punishable by death. For us today, it's impossible to imagine the terrors, the horrors that those early Christians endured. These tiny, vulnerable communities of people who... uh, were considered traitors of the state, deserving of death. The families were torn apart. The family members and, and friends turned each other in. People were executed. Living through this persecution, they wanted to know, uh, is this suffering? Does it mean anything? Is it leading? So, does, it, does it have some purpose to it? And apocalyptic literature, as we call it, sought to answer that very question. The book of Revelation, it's the most popular of the apocalyptic. It's it's the most elegant, beautifully written, sophisticated, cryptic piece of apocalyptic literature we have in human history. It it, it speaks of of all the things that are happening in this local context. It was written by a real pastor, written to a real church about all the things that were happening in and around that church in Rome. And it, it uses these very graphic images, um, dragons, plagues, horses, be- beasts with swords protruding from their mouths, lakes of fire. It's, it's very much like Game of Thrones kind of stuff. <laughs> and Rome, the evil persecutor, is called Babylon. We have to ask the question, why all the metaphors here? Because because the book of Revelation, it's a subversive protest literature. You can't just say things clearly and expect to live. You have to go underground. You have to communicate in ways that are more cryptic and more subtle, more graphic, more alarming. Rome is going to fall. That's the message. The the faithful will be redeemed. Their suffering will mean something. And at the end, there will be a garden, a new Jerusalem. The old city will fall. The new Jerusalem will rise. And there will be no more suffering. No more death. And this message gave people of the time deep hope that God would not abandon them or their world. Revelation gets a lot of attention these days, but there is an alternative vision in Scripture about the so-called end times, but it's not understood that way. It's in this letter to the Ephesians that you heard read today. It speaks of the same fears and struggles and hopes that the early Christians uh, uh, felt uh, uh, in Revelation. But instead of being written like Revelation was, like a graphic novel, Ephesians is written like a beautiful sermon. And in his sermon, the writer of Ephesians, he reaches back into ancient scripture, into the Old Testament, as we would call it, for this idea that would communicate a truth. This is what preachers do. 
And they go all the way back, and this writer goes all the way back in, in history, 500 years earlier, when the Hebrew people, the Jews, were, were exiled in Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah writes these words of encouragement to the exiles. And like those early Christians in Rome, the exiles in Babylon were praying that God would come and save them, that God would defeat the forces of oppression and persecution. But instead of like the prophet who wrote to the exiles uh, um, or the revelation that writes in violent images, Jeremiah writes in peaceful images. The book of Jeremiah is beautifully written. I have loved you with an everlasting love, it says. I'm going to gather you from the farthest points of the earth. With weeping you will come with consolations. I'll lead you back. Jeremiah was saying the day of the Lord is not about violence. It's not about the world's destruction. It's about restoration. It's about reunion with God. Where creation will flourish. There's no more hunger or war. The young will dance. The old will sit back with delight and watch them dance. Mourning will be transformed into joy. People will weep, but they'll weep tears of gladness. This is the imagery that we find in this passage we read from Ephesians. They were also praying for Christ's return. And the writer echoes Jeremiah with this image of gathering up all of creation into God's self. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, not the end of time, the fullness of time, to, quote, gather up all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. And that's a very different kind of apocalypse. It's a moment in time when God will gather us all together and we will be in God. Once again, if you've been a part of this sermon series for the last seven weeks, here's this dominant image of shalom, of the work of God drawing disparate, opposing, separate forces and elements into God's self, creating wholeness with all things. This is a message that's woven all over the Bible. And it says, I I know it's hard, the persecution, the suffering, the pain you're enduring, but don't give up. Keep believing. Keep working for what's right. Do not get cynical. Do not concede. All of this is headed somewhere. Not toward destruction, but towards shalom. And you won't find that message in the Left Behind books. But it's everywhere in the Bible. God will not abandon this earth, but will gather up all things. Restore all things and shalom. And Jesus preached this. He lived it. He even died for it. He created shalom everywhere he went. Sinners were forgiven. The dead were brought back to life. The ill were healed. The lost were found. Shalom, unity with God. Jesus, the prophets, all the ancient rabbis, they taught the same thing. That's where it's headed. So what about you and me? All those ancient teachers taught this is what we live for. What about you and I? What are we living for? There's this big theological word that we have to talk about the hopes and fears of of the future that we all have. In theology, that word is eschatology. Eschatology. What? It's two words. 
made up of Greek eschaton. Eschaton is, is, is really last or last things. Logos, of course, means the study of. Eschatology is simply the study of last things. And why does it matter, you ask? Why is eschatology so important for Christians? Because what we believe about the future shapes how we choose to live in the present. Eschatology shapes our ethics. Last things tell us what to do about present things. What we hope for shapes what we live and we work for. What we hope for shapes what we live and work for. Last summer, Lori and I and Matt, we went to Maui for a vacation in July. We saw most of you there. (laughs) Before I left, I thought, you know, I'd love to do a bike ride as a cyclist. I looked this up and there's this epic bike ride called the West Maui Loop. Maybe some of you have ridden this. It's a 65-mile gorgeous loop around the west side. So I packed all my cycling gear. I rented a performance bike at a local shop. And everyone there at the bike shop, when I picked up the bike, they said, oh, you have to stop at Joanne's. It's about halfway around the loop. There's a little banana bread stand. Joanne's there. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lady. She'll, she'll, she'll talk your ear off, but she's, she's wonderful. I read this on a blog as well, and so I was, I was pretty excited to meet Joanne. Stop for banana bread. They said, everyone, everyone stops there. This is what we do. I'll do it. I couldn't wait to meet Joanne. I, halfway around the loop, I came around this bend in the road, and, and I spotted Joanne's banana bread stand. It felt like Christmas. <laughs> like all the anticipation, expectation that came together in that singular moment. I got off my I walked to the, the window, and Joanne was standing there. It was Joanne. I said, Joanne, I've heard so much about you. And she just stared at me. <laughs> Blankly. I said, Joanne, my name is Mark. Uh, it's so great to finally meet you. No response. <laughs> just this silent, quizzical look on her face. I'm from Colorado. I came from San Diego. Nothing. Crickets. I even dropped the, the pastor card. <laughs> and I was dumbfounded. Uh, the word crestfallen comes to mind. Uh, what a letdown. So I dropped this $5 bill on the counter. I grabbed some banana bread and I walked off. The next 30 miles or so, I, I couldn't get my mind off Joanne. What happened? Was it something I said? But I was determined not to give up on Joanne. The next morning, I told Lori and Matt, we're going to go get some banana bread. <laughs> it's a beautiful drive. There's a woman at the uh, halfway point. Her name is Joanne. Super chatty. You're going to love her. I was determined not to give up my hope here. We drove out to that banana stand, a banana bread stand. Lori got out of the car. There was Joanne, and Lori said, Hi, Joanne. I have heard so much about you. And Joanne looked at Lori with that same quizzical, silent, confused face. And then she reached into her ear and she pulled out a a hearing aid. And she said, I got these three days ago. I haven't haven't heard a single thing anybody has said to me. (laughs) 
what we hope for shapes what we work for. There are at least two ways we can live in this world. One is to, to live passively and wait for that end of time to arrive. To wait for the rapture. Trusting that God has some divine evacuation plan for the faithful. That means we can just let the world go to pieces. The second way is to choose daily to live, to embody the fullness of time, the shalom in everything we do. Trusting the promises of the writer of Ephesians, who says God's not going to abandon this thing. We're going to be a part of this thing. In love, God wants to gather, gather us to God's self. Kieran Satiana is a professor of MIT. He says there are two kinds of ways to live according to the Greeks, telic and atelic. Telic, telic activities are activities that you can finish. This sermon, it will be finished. You'll drive home, that, that will be, you know, we, we get to some end point. Telos, meaning end points. Atelic activities are those that, that give us meaning and purpose, the things that can't be finished. I've done so many funerals, nobody has ever stood up and said, uh, you know, he mowed his lawn every Saturday, what a great man. Or wow, she was so responsive in her emails, um, I'll never forget that about her. We only remember the atelic activities, the things that we do that never end, playing catch with our kids, working for justice. You never go down and feed 125 hungry people downtown and say, I just solved world hunger. It never ends. But that's the work we give ourselves to. That's the work of shalom, of working toward the fullness of time. What about your life? I uh, want to ask you the question, what are you going to do with this planet Earth? But the real answer, the real question is, what are you going to do about it? Because how does God work? God works through you and me. God woos us, calls us to work. That's how God works. What are we going to do about this planet? Can I just give you three very quick suggestions? Um, Global climate change, we asked you in the survey this week, is it a real problem? 93% of you strongly agreed or agreed. It's a real problem. I believe the proper care and stewardship of earth is a spiritual issue. 88% of you said yes. I'm willing to make personal changes in my life to address the threat of global climate change. 93% of you said sign me up. What can you do? It can be so overwhelming. Just keep it simple, atelic. These things never end. Plant a tree. A single tree that you plant will absorb one ton of carbon dioxide over its lifetime. On Saturday, April 23rd here at St. Andrew, we're partnering with Denver Digs Trees to plant trees in Denver in the urban centers because neighborhoods that are impoverished with, with residents that are poor they tend to have a 41% fewer trees to help cool the air and clean the air. We can moderate our red meat consumption. I love burgers and steaks as much as anybody. But remember, methane is the second most significant greenhouse gas. And cows are one of the most, uh, the greatest methane emitters. Multiple stomachs, a grassy diet, every breath they exhale 
contains nothing. You can walk, you can bike, you can carpool, you can take mass transit whenever possible. You can even work from home just one day a week. But if you reduce your weekly driving by 10 miles, just 10 miles every week, you can eliminate about 500 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions every year. You can likely think of other things, and I hope you do. Think of atelic things that never end, the care of our planet, for the fullness of time, for shalom. Three takeaways, because God so loves the world, because God so loves the world, God will never abandon anything, but will gather all things into himself. What we hope for shapes what we work for. God works by calling us, wooing us to do God's work. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.